let me start by saying that uh, as we talk about family, there is one word that I, I know that all of you have been affected by, and, and I would guess, if you're anything like me, and if your family's anything like my family, then most of the worst stuff in your family comes from this one thing, this one word that I'll say now, ready? Anger. When we talk about divorce and we talk about abuse and we talk about fighting and yelling and arguing and kind of that uh, set of things that takes place in our families, uh, when we talk about the worst things in our family, they all are driven by anger. They're all wrapped up in anger. They're all motivated by anger. I mean, when people get divorced... One of the things that destroys families, right? I mean, it, it breaks a family, it ends a family, it, it, it severs a family. When we talk about divorce and we think about what leads to the divorce, there might be a million different factors, but ultimately what happens is that all those factors cause anger, and then as anger boils over, then people say mean things and do mean things, and then, and then the marriage ends, it dissolves. And sometimes the anger can be good in those situations, don't hear me wrong, but anger is still a part of it. Uh, not good, anger's not good, let me rephrase that. Anger can be a normal reaction, an appropriate in some ways reaction to the thing that's been done, uh, but it's still all wrapped up in anger. And the weird part to me, I think that this is so strange, when I think about families and all that anger causes, all of the issues that it brings about, all of the hurt and the pain and the ruining of families that it is responsible for, it's interesting to me, it's strange to me, it's weird to me, that we don't make a bigger deal out of anger itself. We talk a lot about the symptoms of anger, but we don't really think about dealing with anger. You don't see people oftentimes get counseling in their families because they're angry. They get counseling in their families because they did something out of anger and now they realize that they need to deal with the anger. But usually people don't go, I'm just angry. I haven't done anything. I haven't ever even yelled. I, I don't even raise my voice. But there's anger inside of me and I've seen that it can destroy families. Let me deal with that now. And what we're going to see in this tragic story today is that anger must be dealt with. If we're going to have the families that we desire, then we can't just try to get rid of the symptoms of anger. We can't just remove the things that anger causes. We must actually deal with anger. And we're going to try to see, uh, try to look at this morning some of the ways, maybe just one uh, of the ways that we can begin to remove anger from our lives. The passage comes to us in Genesis chapter 4, and last week we talked about Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of humanity, and one person said it this way, if chapter 3 is about the fall of humanity, then chapter 4 is about the fall of family. And it's a very famous story, but a story that you stop talking about usually when you're done with Sunday school if you've grown up in the church. 
Here's what we're going to see in the uh, words of one author. Sin brings internal strife to the family and eventually alienation among the members of the family. Now, I'm just going to, because we're starting in two places here. If you've never been in church, then you don't maybe know this story, but everybody who's been in church knows this story. So let me just tell you the ending of our story, okay? There's a, a guy named Cain, and there's a guy named Abel, and at the end of it, Cain is going to kill Abel and then get punished by God. So now we're kind of all on the same starting level because I'm going to allude to that as we go. But, but what you're going to find so interesting in this passage uh, as an adult is that there is a middle section, a conversation with God that shows that Cain should have dealt with the anger ahead of time. And it's not just about don't murder. It's about dealing with what's going on inside of him before it leads to the murder of his brother. And the conversation is, is so interesting, but we'll get there in a minute. Genesis 4, 1 through 5. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, one thing just at the beginning uh, that I want you to notice, because I think that this should be true in our lives, and in my generation, it's not so much. But when Eve has her first baby, it is in some ways for her a reminder that God is still on her side, despite the fact that she sinned and, and she tried to hide from God and the fall of humanity happens and she's been ushered out of the presence of God in some way. She still, when she has this baby, looks and goes, with the help of God, I have brought forth a man. And one of the things that I think is forgotten in, in our minds and in our society, maybe because so often babies are born and they're unwanted, or we in our, the current economic state of our country for many years now, if you're in my generation, you've kind of, you know, grown up, you've been an adult with an economy that wasn't like it was for our parents, you know. We don't look at children like that anymore, and in some ways, it's like, oh no, a child, but in God's kind of original design, and even at the beginning, after sin enters into the world, it's like, whoa, whoa, God helped, God provided. Might even be a reminder of what we saw last week, that the original intent of family is, is help and companionship. And she's reminded that God's grace is upon her as she has this baby. Uh, just a side note, doesn't have any bearing on anything really, but uh, the name Cain, nobody really knows exactly what it means, but scholars' best guess is that it means something like birthed. Like, she, it's the first one, right? And so like, it, it just means like baby came out of me. Not the coolest name ever, but it is a good description for the first baby ever to come out. Had nothing to do with anything, but I just thought you'd want to know that, that Cain meant that. Um, now here's the other part that's really, really interesting before we, before we move on to the, the real heart of the story. And it's that Cain and Abel are different. And isn't that what makes family so hard? If all of the family members 
that you have were just like you, then you could deal with them so much better, could you not? Uh, And we are born into a family, and nobody's like us. Even if we have some similarities in personality because of the nature aspect of family and because we're, we end up a lot like our parents. I mean, if you've ever had a brother or a sister, a sibling, then you know that they are not exactly like you. And a lot of times it's the things that are different about them that drive you nuts. Like, why are they that way? Can't they just be like me? I mean, you would not say it like that because you'd sound vain, but that's pretty much what you're thinking. Can't they just be like me? If they were a little neater, a little more organized, if they liked these things a little better, if they shared my interest, if they would just, you know, be more outgoing like I am or less outgoing like I am, you know, then we would get along. And right here in the first family with the two first babies born into a family, God feels the need to say to us, they did different things. They're not the same. And that's part of the reason for the problems that we'll see in a second. Now, the main part of the story, and if you grew up in in Sunday school, the part that you know is that Cain and Abel bring an offering to God. And your Sunday school teacher probably gave you a lot more detail about this offering than we actually know. Uh, Scholars seem to know less about what happened here than Sunday school teachers. It's incredible. Uh, Because let me tell you the things we don't know. Uh, We don't know why they were really bringing an offering in the first place. We don't know where they were taking the offering to. We don't know what God was doing with the offering. Later in the Levitical system that God will give to the people as the laws are written, read the book of Leviticus and Numbers, then God like burns up the sacrifices or there's the reminder that we need to shed blood in order to be atoned for our sins, to have forgiveness for our sins. But none of that's happened yet. And we have no idea what this looks like. We don't even know if God, like he was with Adam and Eve, is still walking around. I mean, this might be like, hey, I killed an animal, I cooked it for you, here you go. Like in a very literal sense, not a figurative way, here's some fruit, there you go. We have no idea what it looks like. Now, the other thing that we don't know about this story, and there's guesses, and some of you think that the guesses are just right because your Sunday school teacher told you, but we don't know why God rejects one of these offerings and not the other. A lot of people want to point to the idea that, that uh, Cain doesn't bring his first fruits. It doesn't say that. But there was nothing telling these guys that we know of that they were supposed to bring the first fruits. There was nothing written down. We don't know if God had communicated that to them. We don't know why God rejects this uh, originally. But in Hebrews 11.4, it tells us something very, very important. It says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. What we know is that when Abel brought his offering, it was out of his faith in God. It was out of his love for God. It was out of his trust for God. It was out of his willingness to be obedient to God, to want the things that God wanted for him, to want to do the things that God wanted him to do. And on the flip side, we know that Cain didn't. 
We don't know if he brought the bad cherries or if he ate all the stuff that he needed to eat or stored away, canned everything. And then he's like, well, there's some leftover here. I'll take that to God. We don't know what it looked like, but we know that he did not do it out of faith. Now, one author said this, it's his best guess. Cain retained the best of the produce for himself. And this is going to be an important part of what we're going to see in just a few minutes. The idea that Cain's response to God, his offering, is not given from a place of faith, out of a place of respect for God, out of a place of love for God, out of a place of wanting to be obedient to God. It's given maybe because he was supposed to, maybe because he felt like he had to, maybe because he was trying to avoid punishment, we don't know. But it wasn't given out of faith. And Cain's mad because God doesn't accept his offering. Cain is very angry. I mean, very angry doesn't do justice to what Cain is feeling. The words very angry uh, translate a Hebrew word that means to be hot or furious or burn or become angry to be kindled. Some of you know that, right? Like you get hot when you get mad. Like it just boils up to say it with an English idiom. It comes from a root meaning to glow or to grow warm or figuratively it was used to blaze up or to be angry, zeal or jealousy. And, and, and Cain is fuming, another English idiom. Cain is fuming because God has not accepted his offering, but he has accepted his brother's offering. And the anger seems to be directed at Abel. Now, the other part is just to see how angry he is, is the word very translates a word meaning very, or uh, greatly, extremely, completely, absolutely, exceedingly, or huge. This guy's like huge angry, say it in a weird way. He's huge, angry, mad. He's furious. He's so furious that he's downcast. And when we think of downcast, we think of sad, but that's not the word that's being used here. The, the idea is that his face is demonstrating how furious he is. He's mad. And we'll just say, because I've already told you how it ends, that anger destroys families. You might just know it from your personal experiences. Maybe your family has been ruined, wrecked, destroyed because of anger. But you ought to know it because you've seen it, at least in other people's lives. And that's what makes this next part of the story so valuable, so important, such a great reminder or maybe truth that we'll learn for the first time. And it's the forgotten part of the story when normally we hear it in church. In verses six and seven, it says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, God asks these questions not because he doesn't know the answers to them. He asks these questions because he's trying to elicit repentance, a turning from the way Cain is going. He wants Cain to go another direction. He wants Cain to change his heart, to change his attitude, to change his mind. And Cain hasn't 
murdered anybody yet. It doesn't even tell us that Cain has cussed out his brother, that Cain has yelled at his brother, that Cain has kicked a door. It doesn't say any of that. It says Cain is angry, very angry. And God says to him, hey, wait a minute. Slow down. Stop. Count to ten, as my great-grandma used to say. Like, this, this is not right. It's not the violence that he will do that isn't right. It's what he is doing right now that's not right. He says, look, if, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. It's more literally like the idea of, of you will, uh, your face will be uplifted towards God. Have you ever felt that because of your anger or what you did out of your anger? Or maybe you've been angry because you felt like you couldn't just look at God with openness, with comfort, without any level of shame. You just felt like God was accepting you and, and God understood you and, and God was looking down and smiling at you because uh, of the place in life you're in. But maybe you've been mad because that doesn't happen. God's like, look, if you do what's right, aside from what your brother is doing, notice that, aside from what that guy is doing, if you just do what's right, then you will be accepted in that rightness. God's looking for repentance and he doesn't get it. One author said it this way, the consequences of his reaction are, far, are, are more far-reaching than the initial sin itself. For if he pursues anger, it will result in sin's mastery over him. It is possible for Cain to recover from sin quickly if he chooses to do right. It's possible for Cain to get out of this situation unscathed if he will make a decision to remove the anger, not just the consequence or the symptom of that anger. Now God describes this in, in very vivid terms. He says sin is crouching at your door. And there's two ways to read this. There's kind of two metaphorical ideas that God might be getting at. And, and the first is weird. Um, and, and that's that in, in the Mesopotamian area, there was an idea of a door demon. And I, it creeps me out a lot, to be honest with you. But like, you could come through a door and woo, door demon. I, I mean, that's the idea. And so uh, what God might be saying here is, watch out or the door demon's going to get you. And I, I don't know what happens after that, but it sounds bad, right? Like, that sounds terrible. Nobody, even if you don't, are an atheist, you don't want to get gotten by the door demon. But the other one makes more sense to me. And it's, it's more of the picture of a crouched tiger. It's a crouched tiger that is totally calm now. But if you spook it, if you allow it to go its way, uh, then it will strike and you will end up dead. I uh, encountered a white tiger really, really closely once. And I think I've told this story in a sermon before, and hopefully it was more than like two weeks ago. But I got asked by one of my good friends to go out to his girlfriend's uncle's house. And it was like 45 minutes away when I was in high school. And I'm like, I do not want to go to your girlfriend's uncle's house so that you can pick something up. And he's like, no, no, you really want to come here. This house is incredible. You're going to see things you've never seen. So uh, I relented and, and said, sure, I'll, I'll go out there with you. So we get out there, and he was right, uh, because it's a story that I've at least told twice, counting this one in sermons afterwards. And so we get out there, 
And the first thing he shows us is this new Black Panther that he has just ordered. And this thing is in a cage, thankfully, uh, and it is still scared. Like, it looks like it just came out of the wild, and it's crouched, and I didn't even like looking at it, and I'm thinking, is it locked, you know? Then he takes us into his house, and he had an amazing sports collection, too, but it's not pertinent to uh, the story at all, um, but a really crazy sports collection. But, but his house cat was a bobcat, and they're like, you can pet it, Okay, you know, what are you going to do? You don't want to be rude. So I try to pet the thing, and it snaps at me. I'm not joking you. This is a real story. And then he's like, no, no, you got to pet it like this. So note to all of you, if you ever are, are encountering a bobcat, and somebody says pet it like this, don't listen to them. Because I try to pet it again, like they said, and it snaps at me again. And they're like, no, 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 like this. And I'm like, okay. Like, you got to get the right hair on his butt or what? I mean, what is, like, and so anyway, I gave that up. But then he takes us outside to show us his pride and joy, and it's a white tiger. And so I am like, I am like from here to here, outside of the cage of a white tiger, and this guy's like, you know, go over there. I'm going to get in. I'm like, oh, boy, buddy. Like, I'm going to be so mad at you if you get mauled to death in front of me. Like, I am going to be furious forever. That's honestly what I'm thinking. I don't know this guy. And frankly, I didn't care about him. I just cared that I was going to witness something terrible. So he gets in there. And the tiger is perfectly fine and calm. And this guy starts shoving it and pushing it and hitting it and like wrestling with it. And this is what Jesus is describing. God is describing like, hey, don't push the white tiger because the white tiger might do something to you that you won't like. You guys know those magicians that had white tigers? I can't remember their names and I didn't write them down. I'm sorry. Yeah, those guys, uh, like they had white tigers forever, and then one day one of the white tigers snapped, and the white tiger like horribly, horribly injured one of them, and he lived, but, but it horribly injured them. And the point of what God is saying is, look, anger's like a white tiger that you think you have an okay relationship with, but if you allow it to continue to be stirred up, and you don't take it's power and it's viciousness, seriously, then it's going to destroy you. It is waiting at the door and it desires to have you. I think most white tigers would like to eat you, <laughs> frankly. And that's kind of the idea here. Sin wants to have you. It wants to destroy you. It wants to ruin you, and it wants to ruin your families. And if you allow anger to fester and you don't learn to rule over it, then it's going to get you, and it's going to get your family. I tried to figure out a way to say this that was memorable, and, and I, I really, really tried hard. Uh, but all I could come up with was this, this single word. And uh, hopefully it'll illustrate it well enough that you'll never forget this. Uh, so we're going to put it up. Danger is mainly anger. Did you get that? It's best I could do. I tried hard. Danger is mainly anger. 
We think danger comes when people start yelling. We think danger comes when the guy gets the gun out. We think danger comes when things are being broken and and it seems scary all of a sudden. But the reality is that danger is mainly anger, not just the symptoms of that anger. And that's what God says to Cain in this story. I'm not thinking about what you're going to do yet. I'm saying right now, anger is crouching at your door and sin wants to get you. So change how you're thinking and what you're feeling and how you're living. This is why I think Jesus, when he is born and and lives and teaches, says this thing in the Sermon on the Mount, his longest sermon, Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable. That's a mean thing to say. Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I think Jesus is saying, look, you know that you're not supposed to do all these things that are the symptom of anger. But I want you to know the deeper things. And the deeper things suggest that you don't even want anger to have a foothold in your life. I think it's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, we just take that first part. Usually when this is used in church settings, we go, well, don't sin in your anger. Paul doesn't say, hey, go ahead and be angry all you want and and just don't sin. He's simply saying, don't sin in your anger. And let me tell you this other thing. Don't even go to bed while you're still angry because why? Because if you are, you're going to give the devil a foothold. And it's dangerous. We believe that danger comes when we start to see the symptoms of anger, but, but we know when we really think about it that the true danger is anger because danger is mainly anger. I just finished a book called The Sound and the Fury. And if you, it's one of the greatest all-time books um, according to the Library of Congress, and they don't like good books. So keep that in mind. If you want to be bored, I listen to it. If you want to be bored for like 20 of 24 hours that you listen to it, then go get a copy today, you know? Um, but there's, it all builds to this, this moment. The climax of the story, really, is this guy who has felt like his family has ruined him, has wrecked him, and that he's had to, and this is kind of a familiar story, right? It's, it's kind of the same story as It's a Wonderful Life, and many of us have it. Because of his family and the, and the sacrifices he's had to make, he's really been pushed down and not been able to succeed in life. And so his response to that is to basically steal money from them for years and years and years. And he saves up all this money, and then one of the family members figures out that the, uh, that the money's in this safe in his room and steals it and runs off. And, and this guy loses it. He's furious. He's angry. And he's driving down this road in one of the key scenes of the book. And he's thinking out loud. It's written in the first person. And, and he's like, I was headed for disaster. 
He knew, not because he was on some road going somewhere, he knew that there was danger, not because of that, but because of the fact that he was so enraged that he was going to do something that was bad. And this drive that he takes becomes almost a metaphor for us of how dangerous anger can be. And he gets to where he's going without fixing the anger, without dealing with the anger, without trying to turn around and, and, and go the other direction and his soul and he gets there and he ends up in a fight with an old guy who almost stabs him to death. But the guy was smart enough, unlike many of us, to know that the anger was going to lead something to something like that. But too often, we don't even realize it. We just let anger fester and fester and fester. And it is crouching at the door waiting to get us and waiting to get our families. In verse 8, it says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Another aside, Adam and Eve aren't even mentioned here, but think about what they felt. From what I've been told, and I can absolutely believe it, the death of a child is one of the worst experiences a person can face. And a lot of times, and I've dealt with this in sermons, there's a feeling when somebody around you dies or when anything bad around you happens, was it my fault? And a lot of times the answer is no, right? But for Adam and Eve, it's yes. If they don't eat the fruit, then their son's not dead and their other son's not a murderer. And they must have absolutely been crushed. Cain's refusal to rightly deal with his sin permitted his anger to fester into murder. And what I know to be true from my own personal experiences and from that of others is that anger can lead us to do things that we never thought we could possibly do. I never thought I could hate a person, but I allowed anger to fester in my life when I was in college, I'll save you the details, towards a single individual, and I absolutely hated them hated them. And when I mean hate, I mean to the point where I no longer wanted that person to exist. And by the grace of God, uh, I was able to move past that. But the next logical step there is murder, right? When you hate somebody so badly, you don't want them to exist. The next logical step is to make it so that they don't exist. And I'm a nice guy. That's not, I don't, there's no other person I hate. I usually like people. I'm not easily angered. I, I, I just, I, it's not me. But as I allowed anger to fester, I began to hate somebody. And it wouldn't have been a stretch. And I know it makes me sound like a psycho, but it's what happens when anger is not dealt with. It was not that big of a stretch for me to have killed a person. I went to school with a very nice guy. His name's Anthony Richardson. And I don't know the details of this story, but I can tell you that Anthony Richardson somehow went from being a very nice guy, a kid that we all like to hang out with, a kid that I think my dad coached would tell you great things about him, to being in prison until we're about 55 years old because he murdered somebody. And I can tell you just from knowing the guy, it wasn't spur of the moment, oops, got mad one day, anger festered in him, I'm sure. And now he's locked away because he killed somebody. We must see that danger is mainly anger. And we must deal with anger before 
it produces the symptoms that all of us fear. In 9 through 12, we kind of see the ramifications of the story. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. The question, where is your brother? Again, it's not just a question like, hey, I'm looking for Abel. Anybody seen him? The question is actually one that's meant to invoke conviction. In Jewish circles, still to this day, in a lot of countries, uh, cultures, not America, we are responsible for our family, and that's the way it was designed. We said that when God created family, at the very beginning, it was for help and companionship. And so when he asked this question, the answer is supposed to be yes. Yeah, I am my brother's keeper. You've given me my brother and you've given my brother me so that we can support each other and help each other and be there for each other and all those things. If you follow the Old Testament story, you will find really quickly that family is supposed to take care of each other. As one author said, while individuality was not denied, individualism in the sense of autonomous person having privilege in opposition to or at the expense of the familial group was not practiced. Families took care of each other. It was designed that way. And instead of that, Cain kills, destroys, ends his brother's life. And the punishment is for him to be removed from the help and companionship of his family. He was going to have other siblings. His parents were still there. And God says, you must leave here. And you must wander the earth without that companionship and without that help. Because he commits this family scandal, he loses the protection and the bond of that family. And I'll say it one more time. Danger is mainly anger. and We must remove, remove, remove that anger. Now we've already seen what made Cain so angry. And that was in essence that he gave an offering out of no faith and his brother gave an offering out of faith. But 1 John 3, 12 explains it further and it gives us the beginning to how we can remove anger from our lives. And it's nothing like you're gonna think. It's not count to 10. I can tell you that. It's something entirely different. 1 John 3, 12 says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Why? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. There are two ways to combat anger. The first is love. I have described love in this church and many other places this way. Love is them above you as their good you pursue because of their value. It's a lowering of oneself for the good of the other person. Not just a lowering of oneself so that you can uh, enable them or allow them to have whatever they want or whatever they feel like. That's not it. But it's lowering yourself, making the other person more important for the other person's good. And in 1 John, we see that one of the problems that Cain had is that he didn't love. 
For him, it was about him and not about seeing his brother excel. The other thing here is righteousness, a big word that simply means a right relationship with anybody, but when it's used in the Bible, it most often refers to a right relationship with God. If you ever get angry, and I'm sure you do, but if you ever get angry, it's a sign that something is off in your relationship with God. And I would add to that and say that it's not just a sign something is off in your relationship with God, it's a sign that you have created an idol in your life, that you have given something the place of God in your life. If we love and we do our best to be in a right relationship with God, giving him the first and best place of our hearts, then it begins to remove anger. Now, the first way that I want to describe that is not through these jars. I'm just going to open them while I say this. There is only about one person in my life who can make me angry, and it is a person that does far less to make me angry than anybody else, and it's my wonderful wife, Bren. And here's the reason. Let me tell you the reason. The reason that Bren can make me more angry, more furious, more upset than anybody else, and she could do the exact same thing and be worse, is because... The history of my family and the family dynamics that I uh, have experienced, have, have lived with, have made it so that especially in the past, but even now, romantic relationships have been an idol to me. Romantic relationships that many times in my life, even to this day, lesser degree, thankfully, are the thing that made me feel full and valuable, and they're the thing that made me feel like I had worth and that I was good enough and that I wasn't going to be abandoned in some deep spiritual sense. And so Bryn, who's great, let me just keep uh, iterating that, she's great. Bryn has this power to evoke anger in me that nobody else has because she chips away at my idol or she makes me think that my idol won't stay in its place when she does something I don't like. So if you say to me, like, hey, I know I told you that I was going to do this, but I can't, say, all right, I'll figure it out. But if Bryn says, I know I told you I was going to do that, but I can't, it's like, what are you doing? Like, why is that? Why would you tell me you're going to do something and not do something? Like, be responsible. And, and here's why. It's not because Bryn's irresponsible. It's because there's something inside of me that says I'm not as fulfilled anymore, that I can't trust that idol in my life, that, that I haven't received what I need to be full and whole and all those things. And, and I would just say, where there is anger in your life, you can see that you've given something else the place of God, and you can see that you're not loving in the way that you ought to be loving. Now, here's how I want to illustrate it. We, we think that anger comes from the outside. I guess I'll go in that order. We think that there is, I don't know, stuff that evokes, that uh, causes anger. We think I would never be angry if they would just. We think I would never be angry if the world was different. We think I only get angry because you did. We think that anger will come, you know, from this outside stuff, but the reality is some people don't get angry about the same stuff we do. And when our insides are good, 
when we are loving and we are living righteously, placing God in the best place in our lives, then the things that come from the outside don't cause the anger like they might otherwise. The truth is that anger comes from what is in you. Did it fizz? There we go. One more scoop just to illustrate it better. We boil over like Cain, not because of what comes into us, but what is inside of us. Anger comes from what is in you, not what comes at you. And if you want to remove anger, then you must be a person who fills up your soul and your heart with the desire to love and a desire to live righteously, making God you're all in all, and not a person or not a thing or not something that you can obtain in this life. Have you ever known people that you know, you know, you know, if you accidentally bumped into their car, they just go crazy on you? Like you can't imagine scratching their car because they would flip out, they'd get angry. You know those types of people? Yeah? Somebody, I know you know somebody like that. You know why? Because they've They've loved a car more than people, and they have made that car their idol, putting it in the place of God, finding their satisfaction and their, their hope even and their, their fun and their enjoyment and their joy and their peace, all in that piece of steel that has a motor. We need to hear from this story. It's important. And we need to not just try to remove symptoms of anger from our lives, but we need to remove anger from our lives because most of danger is anger. And we do it not by saying, get out of me, anger. That never works. Some of you have tried it. Stop being angry. Doesn't work. We remove anger by changing our hearts. And we change our hearts by making love, not just the feeling of love, but the action of love, the driving force, and by focusing on putting God in the right place in our lives. Now, for some who are here, some who will listen online, that means becoming a Christian. And I could give you like a billion reasons that I'm glad to be a Christian that I think you should be a Christian, the reasons that I want you to be a Christian. But one is that you will never overcome anger if you don't. I would get divorced because of the anger that Bryn can induce in me if it wasn't for my relationship with Jesus. It's the only thing that keeps it in check. It's the only thing that allows for us to have a good marriage, to still like each other, even though we've, we've gone through, uh, we're in the middle of, of a divorce year right now. Year seven, a lot of people get divorced. We still like each other. We still get up on Saturday mornings and think we can spend this day together. This is a good day. It's in large part because of Bren and, and it's an even bigger part because, because I've learned to love because I recognize that Jesus loved me and God's the real one who gives me my satisfaction now. So some of you need to become Christians and then others of you, you just need to get right. You need to say, do I really care about loving more than a feeling, and then you need to say, what is it that makes me mad? Because look at that, and then right by that, 
Right by what makes you mad, you're going to find the thing that you're trying to find your joy and your satisfaction and your peace and your hope in. If you want to have a great family, you must remember that faith fixes families. And faith fixes families because when our faith is growing, our love increases and we put God at the right place in our hearts and our souls. And so I hope that all of you will remember that danger is mainly anger and you will love and you will put God in his right place and you will not just think about the symptoms of anger, but you will do your best right now to remove it from your lives. Please pray with me. Lord, I just pray that all of us, God, would, would have the right stuff inside of us. I pray, God, that that we wouldn't be people who just care about what anger causes, but we would be people who learn from this lesson of Cain and Abel and what you said to Cain. And, and God, we would, we would, instead of looking for the symptoms, we would want to deal with anger because we know that sin wants to have us. And Lord, I've seen so many families that have been had because they allowed for anger to fester. And I am blown away sometimes, Lord, by, by just how people don't seem to care that they're always angry. And it ruins their families. So Lord, I pray for every person here and every person that will listen to this sermon online. And I ask God that, that first, if they're not Christians, they would become Christians. And even if they don't become a Christian right this second, God, they would at least explore Christianity because they would know that it's the only way that they can deal with their anger, truly deal with it, and not just mask the symptoms. And God, for those of us who are Christians, I just pray, Lord, that every day you would help our faith to grow so that we may love more and we may put you in the right place, God. Nothing else being number one. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for these middle verses that are so often forgotten that, that you show us that we can't just deal with, with fighting and violence and divorce and all of those things, but we must deal with our anger. Let us do it, Lord. Let us take this warning seriously. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen.